as Timothy worked with the church in Ephesus. This is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 8 through 16. Let's be standing, please, as we hear the word of God. Paul writes, In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. And although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world. And he was taken up in glory. May God bless the reading of his word. I confess that I end up watching television late at night sometimes, just kind of to zone out. And one of my favorite things is when these commercials come on where this guy is telling us breathlessly about some wonderful product and it is so wonderful you can't buy it in stores. Don't quite understand that. The only way you can get this thing that's going to change your life is if you send in $9.95 immediately to this location, plus shipping and handling, right? But the best part is, before the commercial's over, they say, but wait, if you order right now, we'll double your order. You get two of those things, plus extra shipping and handling, which kind of, anyway, well, you know, I'm all fired up. I, I, I don't usually order the product. In fact, I never have. But it's appealing. Two for one. Today you came breathlessly expecting a sermon. Just awaiting this time when I was going to get up here and start talking. Well, I've got good news for you. But wait, you're going to get two sermons today. All right? This church is in the process of uh, recognizing uh, deacons reaffirming some who have been serving for several years and naming others among us who have showed the gift of serving and helping others. And today we're going to be looking at a passage that has to do with that process, but I want to look at it in two ways. Uh, first of all, we're going to look at it in kind of a technical way, and uh, I, I know that that's not everybody's cup of tea. You know, here at Johnson Street, I just remembered I didn't bring my clicker over. Here at Johnson Street, 
we um, talk about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we recognize that we do have a group of people here who are predominantly mind people. And they love the technical aspect of Bible study. So you're in luck. This first sermon is for you. Now, the rest of you, you can decide, do I want to tune into that part or do I want to take a little nap? Well, it won't offend me whichever way you go because I will wake you up when it's time for us to look at it in the second sermon in a more general way, to look at this passage as to what it says to all of us and that the call this passage brings to our heart. The passage is found again if you want to open your Bibles and read along with me in Second and First Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 16. First of all, some technical matters about this passage. The Apostle Paul was concerned about the quality of church leadership. This was something that was very important to Paul, and he wanted to make sure that churches were well organized and that they had recognized among them those who were quality leaders. We know this because as he wrote letters to a couple of his young preacher friends, one was named Timothy, the other was named Titus, that in talking to these young preachers and as they were struggling with the leadership of the church and what it should look like, in each of those letters, 1 Timothy and to Titus, he gives pretty detailed instructions about what kind of people that you're looking for whenever you are appointing people into leadership or public positions in the church. So it's not a light matter, it's something of great importance, and therefore we should be concerned about it too. Anytime a church turns its minds to that process and goes through that process. Now another observation is that these lists are not identical. If you take the list of attributes in Titus and compare it with the list of attributes in Timothy, you find that there is some overlap, but not a lot. They seem to be different. Well, why is that? Well, I suggest it's because the lists are situational. And that word will come up here in a minute. All right? That these lists are situational, that they have to do with the specific situations that are going on in the churches that Paul is dealing with. He knows these churches. He knows things about them. And so as he writes to, for example, Titus, Titus is working on the island of Crete. And Titus is establishing uh, mission churches, brand new churches. He is going out and starting churches up. Timothy, on the other hand, is working in Ephesus. And Ephesus is a very mature church. In fact, Paul himself had been the preacher in Ephesus for three years. And Paul knew that church well, and that church was well-developed. Well, what would be the difference then? Well, in Titus... He was probably appointing the first elders that these churches ever had. And also, he was working in a, in a culture that was known for its godlessness. He was working in a culture that was known for its immorality. The rest of the world made fun of the Cretans because of how rude and crude they were. So it was a rather unique environment. And so when he wrote to Titus, he told specific things that he said, now look for this kind of quality in the people that you appoint as elders. Now it's also interesting that he says nothing about deacons. 
Probably why? Because these churches weren't to that point yet. They weren't developed enough. They weren't mature enough. They, first of all, had to get a team of elders together. And once that was done, then maybe as the church grew and matured, it would be time to recognize deacons among them. And like I said, there there are some different... For example, in Titus, since those are new churches, he does not tell Titus not to, to appoint as elders a new convert. He tells Timothy that because Timothy is working in a mature church where there were people who had been Christians for years. But that would be silly to tell Titus, now you can't make an elder out of someone who's just recently become a Christian. Why? They had all recently just become Christians. So doesn't that kind of make sense? Well, in Timothy, though, he talks to a mature church that has had elders and obviously has had deacons as well that they had come to the point that they had recognized another group of people as the deacons. However, if you read all of 1 Timothy and you read 2 Timothy and you really begin to grasp what's going on in the church in Ephesus, you realize that there are some problems in the leadership of the church of Ephesus. Things were not going real well in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter or these letters to Timothy. So why did he choose to say the things that he did? Probably because he wanted them to avoid some of the very mistakes that had been made the last time. Some of the leaders, some among the elders, some among the deacons obviously had not been fulfilling their role very well. And so therefore he points out the things, you've got to look for this kind of person so that we can get back on track. So by reading the list, you can kind of go back and figure out, well, what are maybe some of the things going on? And then when you read the rest of the letter, it all kind of makes sense. Yeah, I see why some of their leaders had not been acting in this way or had been acting in that way. And Timothy wants, or Paul wants Timothy to correct that as they go on. So today we're going to focus on the church in Ephesus because it is Ephesus that has deacons. And that's what we're talking about. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 16. But before we wake up the rest of the congregation, mind folks, okay? Before we move to the second sermon, we've got one more technical matter that we have to deal with in this passage. And it's kind of the elephant in the room, isn't it? Because right in the middle of listing the characteristics that, that Timothy should look for in these new deacons, he drops in a sentence in verse 11 about women. And to be honest, it's a rather awkward sentence. And no matter how you look at it, it's difficult to interpret. The question arises, is Paul writing about the wives of the male deacons? Does he have in mind that all the deacons are going to be male And then right in the middle of his discussion, he starts talking about their wives and what kind of wives that these male deacons should have. Or is he discussing the qualities that women who can serve in the office of being helpers and servants of the church, what kind of characteristics or qualities they may have? Now, you may have a strong opinion about which one of these it is. I do, but we have to recognize that there's really evidence on both sides and that there's problems with both of those interpretations. 
So we're going to look at this before we move on and, and see both what are the evidence for interpreting it each way and what the problems would be. For example, if we interpret that little verse 11 as describing the wives of deacons, then, ah, there we go, we have a problem with a subordinate conjunction. I told you we're going to be technical. Mind people, isn't this fun? <laughs> There's this, yeah, thank you. There's a subordinate conjunction right there. And uh, I, I won't bother with it. It's, it's, it's hyotos is the Greek word. But it comes out as likewise or in the same way. And if you read your Greek scholars, they say that word pops up at the beginning of a new topic. For example... Paul moved from talking about elders to deacons, he used the word haotos in the same way. Likewise, if you look back up in verse 8, there it is. So then by putting it in verse 11, he's saying, now we're going to talk about something different. And so many of the Greek scholars say that means he's moving from the male deacons to the female servants of the church. Another problem is that the word women stands alone. Now, let me tell you what it means by that. We've talked about this in our study of women's roles within the church a few months ago, that in the Greek language, there is no word for wife. There is no word for husband. Uh, many times we tout Greek as the ultimate language that is so specific, but in this case, it's not as good as English. It's not as clear as English. There's no word wife. You only use the word woman or you use the word man. And if you want it to be wife or husband, you say the woman of this man or you say the man of this woman. Or you say his woman or you say her man. All right? Sort of got that? Well, this word stands alone. You can even put the word the sometimes in front of it and it will connotate wife or husband. But when it stands alone, primarily it means women. Whether they're married or not, it's just talking about women. And then the other problem with that is that what about the elders' wives? Why does Timothy, I mean, Paul never address the wives of the elders? Could it be that it's not that important what the elders' wives are like? All he ever says is that they should have some, okay? But he never says, and here's what they should be like. Well, if it's situational like we're talking about, it could be that the elders' wives haven't caused any problems and the deacons' wives had. And so therefore, he's, he wants to, you know, shape up the deacons' wives and the elders' wives, they're doing just fine, okay? It could, could be that. Maybe, you know, that's always a possibility. Or it could be, that there is no concept in New Testament times of women serving as elders, but there was the idea that women did serve as helpers and servants of the church and wore the name deacons, such as Phoebe in Romans chapter 16. And that may be why he doesn't mention women in the list of elders' qualifications, but when it comes to deacons, he says, well, here's the, de the qualifications for men. And when you're recognizing women who are servants in the church, here's the qualifications for them. All right, well, that's the argument both ways on wives. What about women deacons? What if we say, well, these are women who are going to serve as deacons? Well, we have some problems. And the first problem is... Is it coming up? Well, it's not going to come up there. Is that it's an awkward construction. He's talking about men, then he talks about women, then he goes back to men. 
And you say, well, wait a minute, you know, it just sort of dropped in there out of the middle. So what he was talking about was their wives, not women, so to speak, because it just doesn't really fit. Although if you notice right above in verse 10, there's kind of a summary statement there. And then he talks about women, and then he goes back to men. And then the biggest one is, if women served as deacons, wouldn't that be in conflict with what Paul had just said in chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, where women are not to have authority over men in the church? And it could be that that could be the defining factor that says, well, he can't be talking about women deacons, or it could be that being a deacon is not a position of authority. That being a deacon is a, is, a, is a position of service and a position of helping under the authority of the elders. So there we go. That's the technical things. Well, wake up. I've got a few minutes left. What does this passage have to say to all of us? You know, what does it say even beyond giving us a checklist of things to look for when we're thinking about appointing deacons. Well, we admit that this passage addresses appointing a group within the church to positions of special service. But in any organization, who do you look for to represent that organization? Don't you look for the very best? For example... If you're on a football team and you're going to elect a captain of that team, you don't elect the guy that goes around skipping practice, bad-mouthing the coach, and arguing with the other players. You recognize among the team the guy that gets it, the guy who's a team player, the guy who represents the values of that team. Or if you're appointing people to the board of a country club, you don't appoint the guy that drives his golf cart across the greens all the time, you know? He doesn't represent the values of the country club. So when it comes time for us to appoint people who are going to fill special positions of service within the church, we want to find those people that display what kind of people a church produces. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ do in a person's life? How does it change someone? What is it about the gospel message that presents a different way of being human? What is it about the church that recognizes that there is a way to live in the world, but there is also a way to live in the kingdom of God? And we want to recognize those people among us to serve us as those people who have gotten it. It's worked in their lives. And if we look at it in that way, shouldn't every one of us be aspiring to these very things? This isn't a list for a supergroup. It is a list of things that every one of us as a Christian should be aspiring to. We should each look at this list. And don't you love checklists, you know? Again, we're back to some of the mind people, maybe the serving people too. But you like to have a list say, okay, let me look at this, let me look at this. Because a couple of times in these lists, Paul says, you know, test yourselves. Test these people. Compare their lives. Well, let's do it to ourselves too. We're not just going to say, okay, I can just be kind of a sloppy Christian, but I want a good Christian to be a deacon or an elder. 
We can't settle for that. Every one of us should set these characteristics as goals of ours too. So let's run through them very quickly here. Don't we all want to be this? Serious-minded. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean you walk around with a frown all the time? No. Some of the most spiritual people I've known are some of the happiest people that I've known. You know, it just goes with it, doesn't it? The joy of Christ. But it means that you're not a flippant person. You take serious things seriously. And in fact, the gospel tells us what's serious and what's not, doesn't it? And so therefore, we're able to focus in on what is serious and treat it seriously and be intentional and and grounded in those things. It says not to be two-faced. Actually, the Greek says not to be double-tongued or double-worded, which kind of lines up with our idea of being two-faced. You're not one person to somebody, and then to somebody else, you're another person. In one situation, you're this way. In another situation, you're that way. You're not one person at church, and then another person at school, or another person at work, or another person at home. You are who you are. And who you are is truly a person of God. You also look for someone that's not a heavy drinker. The Bible is always suspicious of letting any substance control your life. Whatever that substance may be. The only thing that's supposed to have control of your life, as is pointed out in Ephesians chapter 5, when it says, don't be drunk, don't get drunk with wine. What's supposed to control our life? Be filled with the Spirit. That's right. It's the Spirit that drives us. It's the Spirit that comforts us. It's the Spirit that helps us through difficulties, not some substance that we can introduce into our bodies. So therefore, uh, someone that's going to be in a position like this, and all of us should strive to be people that we don't have to introduce outside substances in order to get by the day. Not driven by money or possessions. You know, that's not your driving force about how much money I can make, how many things I can have. Because after all, Jesus told us that it's not the treasures on earth that really matter. Where are we to lay up our treasures? In heaven. That's right. So watch out for people that are just so driven by making another dollar and will do anything to make that. That is not a Christian thing. And who holds the mystery of faith with clear conscience. The the impact here is the clear conscience. Can you hold up the mystery of the faith of Jesus Christ and say with a clear conscience that that's me? I'm a part of that. Now, that doesn't mean that people have to be sinless. If that's true, we're not going to have any elders. We're not going to have any deacons. We certainly won't have a preacher, okay? But what it means is you run a short account. That whenever you recognize that something is not right in your life, that you are a person who is easily moved to confession, to repentance, to receiving the grace and the mercy of God, so that you can, with a clear conscience, subscribe to the mystery of faith and say, that's who I am. Then we get to the list about women, which is somewhat the same, serious-minded, the same word, again, focused, intentional, so forth. Not slanderous, not gossipy. Watch out for people who are always talking about other people. You know, that reveals a lot about their character. And it says sober. I got to tell you this. One thing that I had never noticed before, I had really never run a word study on that word. He uses a different word there than he used before when he said not a heavy drinker. This word means a non-drinker. But it's usually translated in your Bibles as either sober or temperate. 
or, or uh, not a, you know, but anyway, I just found that interesting. Well, I'm getting back into the technical, and I so I don't need to do that. All right, and faithful in all things, which is a lot like holding the mysteries of faith with a clear conscience, that, that this is a person who is dedicated to what the teachings of the gospel are. Back to the men, it said men, it should be the husbands of one wife. Now, we know that's an idiom. You know what an idiom is. We know it's an idiom because if it's literal, that means they're all married to the same woman. Uh, I don't think we want that. We're not going to have a group of men and say, these are our deacons and this is their wife over here. So we know that it's an idiom, but what does the idiom mean? Uh, well, the idiom, the, the, the exact wording is that they are one woman kind of men. Uh, so does that mean that they have to be married, or does it mean if they're married, they've only been married to one woman? Does it mean they've only been married to one woman in their life, that they've never been widowed and then married again, or they've never been divorced and married again? Uh, does it mean that they're only married to one woman at a time? They're not polygamous, which was a problem, especially in Crete. Uh, not so much in Ephesus, but still, you know, that was a, a, a thing back then. There were some areas that men had multiple wives, and he said, no, they know just one. Or does it mean that they're a man who knows how to be married and knows how to be faithful to his wife, knows what marriage is, and that marriage is to be honored as God presented marriage? Again, lots of options there, and you have to take your own understanding of other scriptures and so forth and make up your mind. Also look for people with healthy families. Paul, over and over, in talking about leadership in the church, says if a person has a chaotic family, what makes you think that that person's going to be able to bring order to the house of God? You know, this is a family too. So look at their families and see if there's something about the family that causes you to question whether this person or not knows how to interact with the family and how to do family dynamics. Is there a question there? And then the result is that if they have all these things, they're able to be bold in proclaiming the gospel because their lives match their message. That's what we're looking for. And that's what we're all looking for, not just with deacons, but with all of us. If we want to have an authentic witness to who Jesus is and what Jesus does, we got to live it, right? It's just, you know, the old saying, you can't talk the talk without walking the walk right? Here it is again. Your life has to match up to what you're saying. And if your life matches up to this, then you have boldness to go and to tell others. For one thing, you tell them your testimony of what a wonderful life it is to live like this. And they'll believe you because they see in your life these very things. And so therefore, when we're looking for leaders, we want people who can freely talk about Jesus and freely talk about the grace and mercy that God, uh, that God brings and freely talk because look at their lives they're living it it matches up now we're almost finished but we've got to back up because Paul has mentioned the mystery of faith and he's mentioned this a couple of times already in his letter and before he really leaves this subject he goes on to say I want to tell you what it's like to live in the household of God or the family of God and how you should act you should act in a way that is built around this story. And if you want to have a summary of what the Christian faith is in as few words as possible, he gives it to us right here. I'm going to give you a little bit different translation. I don't have time to defend this translation right now, but this is the way it speaks to me. We believe that Jesus, God in Jesus, 
was manifested in the flesh. Do you realize what a radical belief that is? That the God who created the whole universe became a human being and lived his life just like you're living yours right now. Same feelings, same emotions, same struggles, same temptations, all of it came right at him. This is part of our story. We believe that God was manifested in the flesh. We believe that he was authenticated or vindicated by the Spirit. Now, Paul uses this language in the, the, first, of the uh, first chapter of Romans as well, meaning the resurrection, that the Holy Spirit brought Jesus back from the dead. And that proved that he was God as well as man, that he came back and lives again. We believe that Jesus Christ died for us as a human being, but that he was resurrected from the dead. He was vindicated and shown to the world. He was authenticated as the Son of God through his resurrection. He appeared to messengers. I know your Bible probably says angels, but that's a common word. It can just mean messengers. Jesus came back after his resurrection and appeared to his faithful servants who then took that word out and preached it to the whole world. He was preached among the nations. He was believed in by the world, and he was taken up in glory. This is our story. This is what shapes us. This is what makes us who we are. And as we look back over that list of things, we can say each one of those things, I want to be like that. Why? Because I believe this. This is my reality. We're going to stop here. We're going to stand up and sing another song. And as we do, there may be folks here today who have not built your life on this story, have not really, maybe you have confessed it at one time, but your life is not shaped by it. If that's the case, then we're going to have some of the leaders of this church standing around the perimeter of this room. They're there for you, and their hearts long for you to come to them. Let them pray with you. Let them counsel with you, for this is the family of God. We've come here to do serious things. Open up your heart and let the Spirit work in you. Let's stand and sing together.